0: the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers, episode 2. I'm your host, Ben Pfaff. In this episode, I'm interviewing Dave Neary of Red Hat about OPNFE. I ran into Dave at an Open Daylight event at the OpenStack Summit in Austin, and when I found out that he works on OPNFE, I immediately knew that I wanted to have him on the show. I've heard a lot about NFE and OPNFE, but I've always had a lot of questions about it that didn't seem to get answered even though they're pretty basic. I try not to be afraid of asking dumb questions. I usually find out afterward that other people had the same questions, so I asked Dave all my dumb questions until we ran out of time. I learned a lot from this interview. My favorite part is the explanation of why NFE is useful to non-telcos. It's much simpler than I expected. The most burning question that I had about the difference between SFC and NFE was actually the first one I asked, so you won't have to listen long to hear that answer. Speaking of dumb questions, this interview answered a question that I'd forgotten I had until Dave explained it by implication. Whether carrier grade is about telcos or aircraft carriers. I won't spoil the answer for you though. Finally, Dave and I talk a bit about the value of 64 byte frames, which most people in networking know is the minimum length of an Ethernet frame. We talk about the use of 64 byte frames in RTP. Now, uh, looking at a few specs, it seems to me like with a 20-byte IPv4 header, an 8-byte UDP header, and a 12-byte RTP header, this leaves only 24 bytes for a payload. That's not not much room, and so I'm still puzzled about why that's a good idea. I'd love to hear from an RTP expert about that. Sorry about the background noise in a couple places in this episode. At one point, it sounds like a foghorn's going off. I'm not sure why there'd be a foghorn in the Hilton in Austin, but Austin is definitely weird. On to the interview. I'm sitting here today with Dave Neary from Red Hat, and I think we're going to talk about OPNFE. I think so. I'm going to ask you the uh, same question that I asked last night out of an abundance of ignorance, and I think there are still a lot of people who won't know the answer themselves. So, can you tell me, what's the difference between... NFV, and SFC? SFC is service function chaining. So that's the idea that you string together
1: multiple applications in the middle of a network traffic flow. So something like a a gateway load balancer, rate limiter, um, maybe parental control. These kinds of things are, are network nodes, network node functions, and stringing them together and saying, any traffic from this subscriber to this service should go through this string of services. And so that's a subset. That's one of the requirements that NFV imposes on the system is the ability to do service function
0: chaining. But NFV is a lot more than that. What does NFV add beyond SFC? Is it sort of a a framework uh, within which uh, SFC sits? Well, NFV is is
1: more kind of a, a network architecture concept. So it's network functions virtualization. At the most simplest level, it's taking functions which have previously been provided in hardware by custom servers and turning those into virtual applications, not just virtual machines, but collections of virtual machines, collections of containers potentially, and providing the same functionality uh, on a cloud platform, something like an OpenStack. At the simplest level, it's it's taking formerly physical functions and turning them into virtual applications running on OpenStack, specifically on, on network functions where uh, some of the network constraints are very strong. So in terms of throughput, latency, bandwidth, proximity. Uh, so ensuring that two nodes that you can get end-to-end from one node back to the other to satisfy some standard that exists uh, for things like radio, cellular service. Some of the requirements that the, the applications you're running impose on the platform need some new features.
0: Okay, I want to talk about performance a little bit, but before that, I always hear a lot about NFE in a telco context. Mm-hmm. Are they the main users, the only users? Why, why is it so focused on Telco? So NFV came from the Telco world. The acronym came from the Telco world. It was, it was their way of
1: explaining uh, what they wanted to do with virtualizing Telco applications. But in fact, one of the things that's been really useful is to see, especially in the interface points with OpenStack, where we see uh, telcos in their initial approach to the OpenStack project were not having a lot of success because they were explaining things and it's a very specific, domain-specific language and it's acronym-laden. And telcos were coming in and saying, we want, to do, we want to run an IMS on your cloud and you know, we need these features to do that. And there was, it wasn't immediately obvious why those features were necessary, why they would be useful, um, as you're implying, why they would be useful to other people right, besides telcos? Why is this something other than just a telco feature? And one of the things that's been interesting in the OPNFE project, which we haven't mentioned yet, so the open platform for NFV, has been trying to understand some of those requirements and trying to translate them into more general use cases, translate them into less domain-specific language. And so you do have things like, uh, let me take one example, Uh, fault management, right? The idea that uh, when there's a problem with your hardware or with your host operating system or with the virtualization platform or the guest operating system. You want to be aware of it. And you want to be able to look at all of the faults that are being raised by the system, correlate them, find a root cause and then react to that fault, right? So, uh, adapt to maintain service availability for your application even when something goes wrong in the system like a host going down or a disk failing.
0: That sounds like something that everyone would want. Um, That's what, exactly what, the point. It's, what, been
1: really, it's, it's been really useful to me to go beyond the, the acronyms and, the, as I said, the terminology and say, well, hold on a second. Who doesn't care about application
0: availability? Right. Everybody does. So did it first come up in NFE or in OP NFE because telcos focus on that more than others? Why did it come out of NFE?
1: Well, so carrier grade is probably a good place to start. It's a familiar term to people who are working with telcos. Things need to be carrier grade, right? And carrier grade is somehow brings this baggage of being more reliable, more performant, more manageable than enterprise grade. right? Enterprise grade is maybe three or four nines availability and carrier grade is five nines availability. This is the traditional way that uh, telcos have seen the world. And, and part of that is regulatory. There are penalties, for example, for, for, for a telco if their phone service goes down for even five minutes. Uh, So uptime, service availability are very important. And so carrier grade means four things. It's uh, the security requirements, ensuring that people can't break into the system, game the system. There are reliability requirements, so ensuring that the service is always available. Performance. And then the fourth one is manageability, the ability to see very clearly a total view of the network, kind of the network operations center the ability to control
0: everything across your network at a very fine grain level. So again, these sound like things that, that everybody would like to have. Are there downsides? Why wouldn't I want them? Is there a reason?
1: Well, some of the, some of the telco requirements have things like real-time workloads needs. And as anybody who's worked in real-time knows, we, by, by constraining the latency of, of a response, you're, you're effectively making the best case worse
0: and making the worst case better. So, uh, so, so that's, maybe yeah. it would increase your, your costs if you built everything out to, to this, uh, this. But yeah, model. there's also
1: th- it's, it's a cost trade-off as well. Certainly, uh, telcos are typically uh, have a lot of redundancy. So two servers for one service, for example. And maybe you don't want to do that every time, but you don't have to do, do that every time. So I think a lot of the features that we're doing in the software, in terms of enabling the manageability of the platform, in terms of improving performance at the, at the data plane level, those are going to be useful to everybody. Some of the features you may choose not to deploy in your data center. Uh, some of the configuration or some of the applications that we deploy in terms of kind of policy enforcement may, if you need to have a very rich policy language, that can make your policy management and your things like placements, VM scheduling, can make, them, can make it more complicated. So it makes your platform a little bit richer, but more complicated. So I can see why there would be some resistance to some of the telco feature requests.
0: Sure. I've learned a lot already in the, the last couple of minutes. I brought you to talk because I'm interested in how uh, OPNFE and NFE uh, relate to OpenVSwitch. What's the current role? Okay. Well, OpenVSwitch is the de facto virtual
1: switch for OpenStack. Uh, it's it's the, the one that we've uh, kind of standardized, standardized on in OPNFE. One of the reasons for that is because it's so manageable remotely. Another of the reasons... Uh, why there's been a lot of focus in OPNFE on OpenVSwitch is because the the VSwitch performance is also one of the critical performance bottlenecks that you can have. So we talked about cost. When you're going through the kernel network stack and when you're going over a virtual switch and then through the kernel network stack, you end up losing some of the potential capacity. The bottleneck becomes the, the kernel. And so some of the things we've been working on are, things like uh, accelerating open v switch with dpdk uh, so kind of mainlining the v switch into the nic and bypassing the kernel uh, which provides great performance enhancements it gives you the ability to get much higher packet per second route, uh, rates for small packets like 64 byte packets which would be
0: uh, you know it wouldn't be unusual for rtp voice traffic for example that's an interesting point. I've always seen a, a lot of emphasis on packet performance at 64-byte packet sizes, yeah. and I've always assumed that it was more or less a checklist feature that, that came from uh, the world of hardware switches, where if you're making a respectable hardware switch, you want to make sure that it can handle line rate at 64-byte packets. If, if you're in IPv4 or IPv6 environment, usually there's just not anything interesting about a, a packet that short so in these telco environments that's actually a genuinely useful thing
1: yeah that's 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 a packet size that is common for voice it's a cost trade-off right if you're getting 40 percent of the potential throughput line rate over a v switch at those packet sizes that means you need to get two and a half times more servers which potentially offlays one of the reasons why telcos are so interested in NFV is potential cost reductions of using commodity off-the-shelf hardware instead of these custom boxes but if you're getting three servers for every formerly one uh, custom device, uh, or specialized device, I should say,
0: you're potentially losing that cost saving. Right. So tell me a little bit about RTP then. It's not a protocol that I'm, I'm familiar with, and I bet a lot uh, of our, our listeners don't know much about it either. If you
1: if you look at something like, like SIP, you typically have the, the control plane piece, which is starting the session, managing the session over time, and then you have the actual data. And the data plane is handled separately, and that's what... Would go over RTP It's just the data plane uh, voice, so it's independent of getting through NAT and firewalls. It's independent of managing
0: who's calling who and what's the billing and all of that kind of thing. Uh, one of these packets would have, say, just a few samples uh, from a microphone. Is that the is that the idea?
1: It's going to go through codecs, so there's going to be some kind of voice codec that's going to audio codec that's going to be applied uh, at the source and then decoded okay. at the end.
0: I can see why a DPDK would perform better in those environments. Mm -hmm. Have you found that OBS DPDK is usually suitable? What kind of improvements would be useful? Well, it's still early days
1: in terms of evaluating even just the functionality, right? The patches are relatively recent. They're still going through the the upstream community development process and testing and, and validation in OPNFV. So I don't believe that there are many people running this
0: stuff in production. We've learned over time that until you run things in production for a while, you, you can't really consider something tested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the patches that you're talking about that are going through the system, you're talking about patches that are in OpenStack or in OPNFE, or are you, you saying that, that the OpenVSwitch support isn't mature enough?
1: There are two in-progress developments around OpenVSwitch that are, that are related to this. One is the, the host user, uh, VertIO piece, so that uh, moving enabling Open V-Switch to to be entirely in user space. And then the second is DPDK enabling Switch to bridge directly to the NIC when it's entirely in user space, right? Because without the two pieces, you're not bypassing the kernel. So you know more than I do, I think, about about the status of, of, okay. of that
0: work. I, I think that they're both starting to mature. One of the issues that we in Switch have had with, with DPDK is that they keep breaking the APIs from one version to another. Right. So when, when we freeze a given version of Open switch, we would ordinarily not upgrade it to Support, say a, a different version of uh, of our dependent libraries like uh, dpdk so when we get these questions like oh uh, a new dpdk version was just released when will you support it in open v switch version such and such yeah and the answer is we, we're not going to support it in that version we'll support it in the next version right I can see why that causes a little bit of trouble for. and there's people.
1: certainly been some evolution in dpdk right so yeah until dpdk 2 there was no commitment to version APIs, for example. Whereas now, as of DPDK 2, the, the the APIs are version. So when there is API evolution in DPDK, you can say my application builds against API version 27. I'm picking a number off the top of my head, just to be clear. That certainly helps us Red Hat in terms of being a product company. That allows us to tell application developers, oh, the API version has changed, you need to recompile your application. And OVS DPDK is, of course, a DPDK application consuming dpdk itself Uh, i guess one of the things that that came up in this context is uh ovs has
0: had for 2.4 2.5 a kind of a a less predictable release cycle that's definitely on us we would like to set up a more predictable release schedule we we haven't been uh, that good at it in the past we've said that we will release say n times a year but we have not done a good job of sticking to that. It's definitely some place where we we hope to improve.
1: So I guess the frequently asked question is how's connection tracking coming along?
0: Oh, connection tracking. So the the status there is it it works well, of course, with the kernel and the kernel's connection tracker. Uh, It's actually, I believe, in the uh, Hyper-V port already. And patches have been posted for uh, the DPDK and other user space implementations. I think that those are under review, and I, I expect them to get in pretty soon. Uh, w- w- I would guess within a week or two.
1: And so presumably the expectation is that from 2.6 onwards that you'll be back on a kind of a reasonably predictable four-month
0: cycle? or I would hope so. Our current plan is to freeze, or, or to branch, rather, for the 2.6 release sometime in July. That's good news. I'm happy about that. We're hoping that that can essentially be a, a sort of a 1.0 release of mm-hmm. our uh, of, of OVN as well.
1: So the other thing that
0: uh, you asked
1: about OVS-related work in OPNFV, the other thing that has been a, an area of interest is you, right up front, you asked about SFC and whether that's all there is in, a, in NFV. Certainly, it's an important thing for the NFV community. And and one of the things that we've been working on in the SFC project of OPNFV is is, uh, an end-to-end demo proving out SFC with Tacker as a VNFM, a virtual network function manager, Open Daylight as the SDM controller, rendering a service chain and then making that service chain available to Nova so that we can attach instances on both both ends of that service chain. And a piece of that was enabling network service header support in OVS. So I guess that's also another in-progress development in, in, in
0: Open vSwitch. Right, the NSH protocol. I think that we've had a couple of iterations, couple of versions of an NSH implementation for Open vSwitch posted. The main problem there is that when we review them, it takes an excessively long time to get the next version out. I think that whoever is working on those patches, and I have to apologize, I've forgotten the the author, must be busy with other things or it's not their top priority. But once there's a a new version, I I would hope we could get it in pretty soon. One of the difficult things there was the TLV type options, the type length value flexible options that NSH supports. Right. Uh, But... Since the previous version of NSH patches was posted, we got support for an identical form of TLV-based options for GENEV. And so that part of the patch should not be very difficult anymore. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that the other parts of NSH are fairly straightforward. So yeah, I'm looking forward to to seeing those patches again. If they got posted soon, then we could probably get them into 2.6. So I guess for the benefit of listeners, NSH is the network service header and GENEV is an
1: alternative approach to uh, network service header, which is also in the IP header, right? A... Uh,
0: GENEV runs in the same place in the stack as VXLAN, so it, it's encapsulated within UDP.
1: Okay, and GENEV is, is an IETF protocol
0: now? I believe it's a uh, it's somewhere along the uh, road to standardization at IETF. Jesse Gross uh, at, at VMware has been uh, focusing on getting that through the the whole uh, standardization
1: process okay. uh, so I'm, I'm unclear on the relative benefits of NSH and Jeanette just uh,
0: in terms I'm, of I'm not sure uh, about that either. Yeah. Um, I get the impression that NSH is designed specifically for service function chaining, but I don't know what benefits that brings beyond just having a flexible set of options okay. And The reason why that's even useful is, is uh, you know, of
1: course you'd want to be able to do specific OpenFlow table rules, so where you say if the service is service five, service chain five, and I'm, I've got traffic coming in from this host, this on this port, then it should go. Its next hop is over here. So it, so it allows. I mean, I, th- I think it's kind of it's kind of cool being able to do all of this stuff in OpenFlow. I've been very impressed so since learning about uh, a little bit more about OpenFlow, which is obviously you know, something that's important to open VSwitch. Um, I've been very impressed by the by the richness of what you can do there. It's it's, it's uh, really yeah. Cool. There's <laughs> there's a
0: lot of a lot of potential uh, uh, for, uh, for 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 rich uh, rich configurations there. Uh-huh. Um, now just just to be sure, I, I expect that uh, whether those information about the chain, whether that was kept in NSH specific headers or in uh, say, Geneva options, I think that we'd have the, an equal possibility to match and modify those using OpenFlow. I think so. Yeah. Well, it's all software, right? Of course. Uh, <laughs> like the hard hardware people always say, it's just software. <laughs> so one of the technologies that's been on our mind, or one of the, the software uh, libraries that's on our mind, is VPP, which was recently open sourced by Cisco. Uh, they're promoting it, as I understand, uh, as a uh, an extremely fast uh, a vSwitch. Do you have any interest in working with VPP directly? Or we're also trying to figure out what we can learn from it mm-hmm. uh, or, or use it for within Open vSwitch? Well, similar to Open vSwitch, DPDK, VPP is a, a DPDK application.
1: I have a limited understanding of what VPP is. As I do too. Does. But uh, my understanding is that VPP stands for the Vector Packet Processor. Um, it's part of the FDIO Fast Data Plane uh, Initiative. Uh, which is the Linux Foundation project. And my understanding is that their goal is to have a diverse set of both commercial interests and community interests in uh, in working on data plane acceleration applications, which would include network and potentially like storage IO or any other type of IO. It certainly is not an open flow switch, uh, so it's, it's very different from OVS. It defines a kind of a, a, a directed acyclical graph of functions that you can apply on a vector of packets, uh, which allows it to optimize, um, I'm not sure how, <laughs> which allows it to optimize packet processing and, and, and be a very simple packet forwarder. Their, their initial launch was interesting. Uh, they seem to have a lot of uh, layer two type functionality built in already and even layer three. So you can build a, pretty simply a, a kind of a, a, a V router uh, built, built on VPP and have, have distributed virtual routing out of the box, which is, which is kind of a nice feature.
0: My guess is that one of its advantages is that it, is that it has more built-in and, and less that you have to build in yourself. Mm-hmm. It looks like we're uh, running uh, running to the end of the time that, that you have. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is there anything you uh, want to make sure to, to let people know?
1: I, I guess I should uh, say why I think OPNFE is a good idea. It, it seems like it's a unique place for, uh, for operators, telecommunications operators, and uh, network equipment providers, the people who have been traditionally building these single-purpose servers and uh, OpenStack vendors and open source enthusiasts to get together and agree on what the, the telcos need from this platform, and then bring those requirements to open source projects and, and, and actually fill the gaps. So that's, that's kind of what I'm excited about OPNFE for. Um, well, that's about it. That's, I, I can't think of anything else that I'd like to
0: all right, great. touch on.
1: Uh, do you want to tell people uh, how they can uh, contact you? So I'm Dave Neary, D Neary on IRC, on IRC, Neary D on Twitter, and um, uh, IRC, Freeno, node, uh,
0: EFnet. Great, and it's uh, it's been great to talk to you, and I, I hope that our our, our listeners enjoy uh, hearing about uh, OPNFE. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for Is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more information about OpenVSwitch and OVS Orbit, please visit OpenVSwitch.org.